What is going on, team? How we doing, guys? How we doing? How we doing? How we doing, fam? As uh, as John mentioned, this is the last week in this generous teaching series, and each week we're looking at some of the core resources that we all have time, treasure, and talent, and we're asking, what does it mean to be generous in these areas? And so today we're doing it, guys. We are talking about money. Money. Somebody's excited about that. <laughs> but what do we make of money, right? No doubt some of us have asked these questions. You know, uh, will I have a... Oh, the first gathering got it. Will I have enough? That was the answer. It's okay, you still passed the test. It still passed the test. Will I have enough? Should I check my account balance before I hit this one-click Amazon purchase? I have been guilty of that. Here's the tip, free tip, uh, money tip from Brian. Uh, beginning of the month, better decision than the end of the month. Although if you do it a lot, the beginning of the month, the end of the month is not so good. So free tips that you should not use in your life. Um, is Ethereum a new band or a type of currency? How can I get more? How can she afford that? Because I know what she does for a living and how can she afford that? Or maybe how can I afford that? These are the questions that we think about, that we ask when the topic of money comes up. Money. It's a subject in songs, it's attention in families, it's a source of comfort, a cause of anxiety. But what do we make of money as followers of Jesus? This is really what we're asking. It's really what we're thinking about. When we, 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 we ask this question of like, yes, okay, this is normative culturally for how people do money, but what does it look like to be a Jesus follower and to follow Jesus in, as we think about our finances? What does that look like? And no doubt, some of us, maybe the second we heard that we were talking about money in a place like this, something happened in our body. There's like a little sweat underneath our arms, our shoulders tightened up, and we're looking around, how do I make a quick and strategic, subtle exit immediately? I know that that oftentimes is the response when we think about money. So I just want to say at the beginning of this, um, on behalf of all pastors, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The church has often not got it right when talking about money. Sometimes it's become a guilt-laden, shame-inducing topic where everyone kind of trembles and, and all of a sudden has a shame relationship with money, even maybe more so than they in the past because they know they're not giving a core, like to the extent that they thought that they would. You know what I'm talking about. And sometimes there's weird theology that creeps in the church's teaching of money. So I just want to say I'm sorry on behalf of pastors, and if that's been your experience, I'm sorry that that has been your experience. Our goal for today will be to talk about it clearly from Scripture, not exhaustively, but clearly from Scripture in a way that provokes a sense of wonder and grace as we think about the generosity of God first to us and how we can too, in kind, be generous, yes, with our finances. So, uh, 
We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 15. If you have a Bible, you can open to it, and we're going to be reading those verses just to set the stage a little bit for this passage. And, and maybe you've heard us say this at different points in our teaching series called Generous, because I think I've repeated it every time, but Paul is writing to this group of followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth. They are new followers of Jesus, and what's happened is, is that they have means, they have resources, they have a wealth, and there's this community of Jesus followers in Jerusalem that don't have means, don't have wealth, don't have resources, and there's a famine, and so they can't find food to fill their cupboards, and they don't have the resource to pay for it, even if there was food. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, just as the Jerusalem church sent missionaries to you so that you could understand the gospel, now it's your time to send resources to them so that they can feed themselves, so that they can eat. And we pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 9, and it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Paul says, remember this. Here's a point. When Paul says, remember this, we too should probably remember this. Write it down. Think about it. Write it on your mirror. Underline it in your Bible. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, note that rep repetition of all, having all that you need, you will abound in what? Every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This is legacy language, guys. Think about that. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Those are in need. Their righteousness, it endures forever. They have a legacy of, of generosity. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing, surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay, we're going to be looking at three different expressions of giving that are found in this passage today. And the first one is what we're calling the reason for giving. The reason for giving. I remember when I was not a Jesus follower yet, I was reading the New Yorker or a newspaper. I don't know. It was in some type of print material that I don't often interact with as much because print material, you get it, whatever. But I remember I saw a cartoon and it was of a church environment and there was they're passing the plate and the person they were passing the plate to, you could tell there was beads of sweat. And I forget the caption at the bottom 
bottom, but I identified with the experience because I had been to church before and I hadn't had money to give and put in the offering plate. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we don't pass the offering here because we don't want that experience to happen. But I remember that experience and, and I kind of chuckled and said, well, yeah, I don't know if I'm ever going to find myself in a situation like that again. Well, you know, joke's on me, I guess. But like, what do you do when you're in a situation like that? You know, do you, uh, do you, do you, do you kind of like uh, say, what, pretend? You're like, well, I got to get a hundred, I got a hundred bill in my pocket. I'm, uh, and you just kind of like, you know, pretend like you're putting some money in there. Or do you, like I did one time when I was a, at a VBS thing, like reach in there and grab some money? Cause that looks good. You know, you know, that's not what you do for the record. Um, what do you do when you're in a situation like that? I mean, I think one of the challenges with giving in a church environment is that oftentimes, you know, guilt starts to creep in or comparison starts to creep in, you know, or like what's in your check or what's in your envelope that you're putting in. All that kind of stuff starts to creep in and blur and confuse the reason for giving, right? Verse 12, it says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. There's a couple of cool things to point out there. I'm going to uh, point out one thing first is check this out. This the, the generosity for the Corinthians as they're paying attention to, to God the, the, as he's generous and they're finding that he's generous and they're in turn becoming generous to others and giving to people that are in, are there in need. Those people in turn praise God because of the gift that, that they got from the people that had paid attention to God and noted that he was generous and there's this beautiful circle that happens. As one community is marked by generosity and gives to another community that's in need, and that community worships and thanks um, the generous God. There's this beautiful circle that happens that Paul is articulating here in this passage in verse 12 and in verse 13. But I want to zero in, microscope in on that word supplying the needs. Supplying the needs. If we think about the reason for giving, Paul highlights one of the main reasons for giving. There's two. He highlights the, one of the main reasons for giving right there in, that, in verse 12, supplying the needs, need. Why do we give? Because there are needs. Pretty basic, right? We give what we have because there are those that don't have. Very basic. Needs. That's why I love that John just mentioned some of the things that we do with the giving that we receive here. We try to highlight and, and show some representative cases, not exhaustive. Not, we don't talk about all the things that your giving here at Anchor does, but we try to represent some of it with some stories here so we can connect that in your mind and in your heart that when you give here, you meet needs. Needs. There's two types of needs. Really, really basic. There's two types of needs. The first need, what I would call is survival needs. There are survival needs. Survival needs are what you learned in elementary school, like the, the basic things that all people need to survive. Shelter, food, connection, relationality, family. These three things, and maybe another I forgot, I don't know, are, are things that we need to survive. Oh, sleep. Help. Hey. Sleep. Some of you are like, amen to that one. We need these things. 
And so when we don't have one of these things, then our life gets thrown out of balance, sometimes dramatically. And this is like the church is called to help survival needs. That's why we have this anchor cares fund. When, when somebody has a need, I can't pay my light bill. I can't pay my energy bill. I can't pay my lease. I have this problem, this need, we try to generously send money towards those needs when people raise their hand. Why? Because we want to be a community that meets survival needs. It's what the church is meant to do. Survival needs. I just want to say, if I could, if there is anyone in this room right now that has a survival need, talk to me afterwards. Don't leave here before we have a conversation so we can help meet that survival need. You might be thinking, well, I don't know if it's really a survival need. You might want to kind of, and you're kind of like minimizing it. If, if it's one of the things that I described, then I would call it that and we want to help you meet that need. I would even go one step farther. If there is someone that you know that is in a situation like that, go to our website, talk with me afterwards. We will help you. There's other types of needs, though, what I would call growth needs. Now, uh, a child does not survival need an education, but the growth, their growth requires that they have an education so that they can be formed and mature and grow up understanding God's world and how to operate in it. Education is a picture of a growth need. Similarly, uh, for Jesus followers, we have growth needs. Now, we can survive as Jesus followers without regularly studying Scripture, but if we are to grow, then we need to immerse ourselves in Scripture. It might not be a survival need for our following of Jesus, but it certainly is a growth need. Attending a congregation, being a part of a community, it might not be a survival need, though you could make a case that it is, but it certainly is a growth need. Now, organizations, communities, families, we have growth needs as well. And in fact, yesterday in this room, we had this event called Forward where we talked about some growth needs for Anchor as we think about what God is calling us to here, looking forward into the future, sensing his invitation. And if you're interested in that, you weren't able to come, we have a pamphlet at the info desk where you can just look at that and see some things that we, were call we are calling growth needs for the vision and the life and the future of Anchor. These are two aspects of why, the reason for giving. Needs. Needs. The second is really, really profound. Are you, are you ready? God. <laughs> I mean, it is profound, but you could probably guess it. Needs and God. That's the reason for giving. Paul says, others will praise God this is that circle again, that beautiful circle. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. For Paul, what he does is he connects a right understanding of God with right living for God. For Paul, there isn't a, I have perfect theology and my life does not reflect the theology I believe. For Paul, that doesn't make sense. 
He tightly connects right understanding, orthodox belief in God to orthopraxy, right, living for God. He sees any brokenness or disconnection as not representative of somebody giving their whole life to God. That's why he says your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word obedience has sometimes been in the church, been militarized, be obedient, and kind of this dog obedience style, berating, you know, do more, get, uh, serve more, do, you know, and, and, and sometimes it can feel like just, we can feel burnt out just hearing that word. But let me just say, obedience has unfortunately gotten a bad rap. We can't throw it out just because it sometimes has been unfortunately used. Obedience is really a beautiful expression of what it looks like to be in right relationship with God. And for Paul, he sees a right understanding of the gospel as provoking in us obedience. How does that work? Here's how it works. What is a right understanding of the gospel? It's like understanding how generous God is. Understanding how loving God is. Understanding that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That that he who was rich became poor so that we might in him become rich. That's a right understanding of God. God, That he is provider, that he is merciful, that he is long-suffering, that he, he was pursuing you when you weren't pursuing him. And when we have that right understanding of God, it should provoke in us a desire to live like that to the world. Right? This is what Paul is saying is the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. That is why it is one of the most heartbreaking things when we see whether on the headlines or in our personal life, somebody where there's a tragic broke, there's a tragic departure from that. Where somebody says they believe something, but when you look at their life, it's not just that they're messing up and they're working on it, but they're flagrantly going a different direction and it's heartbreaking because it reveals maybe there isn't a correct understanding there. For Paul, he's saying one of the outcomes is generous giving. Now, I wanna highlight a couple different views on giving, and I don't wanna spend a lot of real estate here, but I know some of us have questions. We've been kind of been in other spaces. We've heard different things, and so I just wanna say, uh, in, in total transparency, there are three, at least three different ways we can think about generosity with our finances and obedience and how that can all map out. The first is what you could call the traditional view where it's that you, you give 10% of your income to the local church and anything above that is an offering, whether to a local organization that follows Jesus and is doing great work or to a missionary overseas or anything far in between. That is the traditional view. It's what our family practices and, and what we abide by. And there's, there's scriptural references and scriptural support for that perspective. And then there's another view that says, you know, really it's just 10% to a mixture of a local church and other organizations that are either doing good justice work or evangelism or or a mixture of both or missionaries. And you just kind of like bring the 10% and you have a percentage here for the local church and another percentage for various different organizations that your heart aligns with. And the goal, there is scriptural support for that perspective as well. I would say the heart is, is that, that as your resources grow, that you wouldn't necessarily just have to set it at 10%, but that as your resources grow, your giving percentage would grow as well because you're able to make a bigger impact and don't you want to make a bigger impact? 
But that is one, another perspective. And the third view, I would say, is uh, to not set a percentage and to not have a real rhythm, but to give as you are prompted or give as you have resources. And sometimes, depending on how your income situation is, this is what is more normative or natural for us. I would just say, and I think I speak on behalf of other nonprofits as well, when there's regular giving, we can plan well and meet needs more effectively. So just as a representing that perspective, the regularity is, is helpful. But those are three views. In total transparency, maybe you've never heard a pastor say that, but you, know, you can actually have scriptural support for each of those views. The goal is that you wouldn't just take one view and say, well, that's the easiest for me, so I'm going to go and do that. The goal is that you would open Scripture, you would study it for yourself in community with others, and you would ask big questions of what does it mean for me to be radically generous as I have means in this moment. That's the goal. Even more, the goal is never to, the the reason for giving is not a percentage. The reason for giving is always need and God. And if we set the reason for giving as a percentage, then we set ourselves up for legalism. And, we, and legalism always puts ourselves on a pedestal and whoever doesn't perform like us down below in a pit. The reason for giving is the need that is out there, the need that is in here, and the generous nature of who God is. That's why we give. That's the reason for giving. Second thing we see as we look at this passage of Scripture is what I'm calling the spirit of giving. The spirit of giving. Again, in verse 6, remember this, Paul says. He's saying, underline it. Use those colored markers that you like. Do what you need to do to remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I, I have to admit, now again, as when I wasn't a Jesus follower, whenever I would hear God loves a cheerful giver, and for some reason, even though I didn't read Scripture, I heard it like I don't know how I heard it, but I heard it. And I would always think of Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live dressed up like the church lady. You guys know that? If you're older than 25, you probably know that. If you're younger than 25, you're like, what is television? (laughs) It's unfortunate, right? Because like the idea is is this kind of like old, uh, you know, person that is disconnected, just kind of wagging their finger and and, and uh, that's the idea that has come across culturally. It's not Paul's intent. That's not Paul's intent. Check this out. The tone, what Paul is talking about is the tone of your, and your approach to, to giving is actually meaningful. Like the mood or the spirit of your giving is actually meaningful. Not reluctantly, the Greek means like don't give unhappily. Don't give somberly. Don't give like weeping that what you're giving is going, right? Because don't give with that spirit. And then he says, don't give under compulsion. This is, don't give under this forced obligation that you're like, well, time to pay my taxes, you know? Like, don't give like that. Instead, crossing that 
Distinguishing from that, he says, give cheerfully. Now, the Greek word for cheerful there is where we get our modern-day English word hilarious. So you could say, Paul is saying, give hilariously, give with laughter, give with joy, give with this beating heart happiness and excitement in anticipation with what God will do with the seed of your giving. Okay? Think about some things that you do with joy. I have some things that I do with joy. Want to hear them? For a long time, I've, going on a run was something that uh, I loved doing. I'd break away from the family for a little bit, run around Point Defiance, and there's those little outcroppings of views of the sound, and, and oftentimes I would just sit there just with sweat pouring down my face, just with a stupid smile across my face, just looking at the water, just feeling this deep sense of contentment, this deep sense of joy. Paul's saying, give with that emotion. Recently, I've started skateboarding a lot more. Follow me on Instagram for more. And... Um, <laughs> And, 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 and there's this cool thing when you land a skateboard trick, especially when you land a skateboard trick at 39, um, because you probably tried it 30 or 40 times and people have been watching you and at a skate park, when you land the trick, all of a sudden they grab the board and they start beating it on the ground and yelling and everyone becomes like these apes for a moment. We're like, rrr, 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 you know, and like, and it's just like this awesome collective elation of joy as, as everyone is participating in this moment where that old guy landed a trick in my case. And, and like, like I think about that moment, like when I remember you're landing with my feet on the bolts, as they say, and you're ro rolling away. And there's this sense of joy of like, I did it. I still got it. <laughs> like Paul's saying, give like that. Like give like that. Or maybe it's a deep conversation with a family member where it's like, you knew it needed to happen or you didn't know it needed to happen, but it happened and the outcome was beautiful. And you felt in your heart the sense of like, oh, thank you, God. Paul's saying, give like that. Give like that. Now, how do we give like that? I, I mean, just say this. If we find ourselves thinking about generosity, either as like unhappily giving or reluctantly giving, we have to ask a tough question. The question is this. What are we in our heart of hearts serving? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you know, Jesus, he doesn't pull any punches. You know, it's like, it's funny how we can culturally, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, still love Jesus. And then you actually read the words of Jesus and you're like, oh, really? Do you non-Jesus follower really like what he's saying here? You know, because he doesn't pull any punches. He calls us to like this radical sense of obedience. So in chapter 6, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, it's, I, I, I'm kind of marveling at this because there's a lot of things that you can love equally. There's some, thing, some things you can love equally, like grandma and grandpa. Hopefully you love them equally, right? Or basketball and golf. You can love those things equally you know? Um, but there's other things that you can't love equally. The Seahawks and the Packers, you can't love them equally. <laughs> Sorry. I had a friend who loved both the Seahawks and the Packers. He said, every time they play, I feel like my, my, my two children are in a fight to the death, and I don't know whether to be sad or, or happy. I don't know. Paul, or P Jesus is saying is that you cannot love God, and not money, but mammon. 
Mammon is the Aramaic word used there in the original languages. And mammon has oftentimes been a description of a personal animating force behind selfish gain. Like this personal, nearly demonic force behind selfish gain. What Jesus is saying is you can't largely serve God and moonlight for mammon. Right? You either hate one or you love the other. So the question is, is that when we find ourselves with a, either an unhappiness or a reluctance with regard to our giving, we have to ask the question, what has my deepest heart's allegiance? What has my heart's allegiance? It's interesting that as Jesus goes and expands on this, uh, going past Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, into the next verse, he talks about anxiety. Now, he's not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm not speaking about that here either. He's talking about the daily anxieties that all of us face. Will I have enough? Will there be too much month and not enough money? He's talking about those things. He says things like, look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't worry, but they have enough. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't worry, but they're so beautiful. Like God, God, has, God can care for you. God knows what you need. We're, we're to seek first the kingdom and everything will be added to you. That's what he says there. But it's almost as if he's saying the path towards the worship of mammon will lead towards this constant anxiety because you're always focusing on what you lack rather than on what you have. So the path towards freeing generosity is paying attention to the generous God, going back to the original reason for giving in the first place. Needs in God. Needs in God. Needs in God. Next window on giving we're looking at is what I'm calling the promise of giving. You may have caught it, but there's some uh, verses here that just are like promise words. He, he says in verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, remember those alls, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul is calling us to take into consideration an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. That rooted not in this kind of like general optimism, but in the very nature of God. He goes on and says, uh, you will abound in every good work. He says, he will increase your store of seed and enlarge your harvest of righteousness. Now, I need to stop here because oftentimes words like that, verses like that, are hijacked into a weird, like wrong theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard it. Here's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel turns obedience into a return on investment campaign with God. It commodifies God. It turns God into a pyramid scheme. That if I give this, then God will give X in return. Right? And oftentimes, in total transparency, it has been used to exploit the poor. I know you're poor, but if you give, you'll get more. What Paul is describing here is not the prosperity gospel. It's something much more beautiful, much more true. It's what I'm calling the proximity gospel. 
the closer you get to the heart of God's generosity, the more you'll see the abundance you've been given. Let me read that again. The closer you get to God's generosity, the more you will see the abundance you've been given. Sometimes you'll find a blessing. I remember early on in Candace and I's marriage, my, my, my wife, we were in a tough financial spot and we were trying to be faithful with our finances. And, and one day there was a check in the mail. I, did, I, I don't even know if we can remember who, who sent it. A couple times in our first few years of church planning, Candace would get letters with just cash in them. Now, this is not something that you can math out and, and map out to some type of equation that always happens like that. Sometimes it, the check in the mail or the cash in the mail doesn't happen. Sometimes it does, and you actually don't have a need, and so you're able to say, great, I can be generous with this too. Sometimes the proximity gospel shows up by not getting something, not getting, financial, not getting a financial gift, but just this deep sense of contentment as you're aware of what you've already been given, right? This deep sense of I'm not going the consumer commodifying cultural way, but I'm going the contentment I have enough way and the proximity gospel unleashes that in your heart. Sometimes the proximity gospel shows up as what Paul says is that as you give, it shows up as a harvest of righteousness. The band can come up at this point. A harvest of righteousness. Who wants a harvest of righteousness? Here's what that means. It means that after sowing with generosity, you reap the very character of Christ which is the goal of all of us, to be conformed in the image of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Paul is describing the proximity gospel, and it's important to note that it is not a, a fair weather potential, but it's a full-fledged promise. As we live with generosity, we get what we need. Sometimes in abundance, sometimes in enough. And oftentimes, we'll find ourselves being conformed to the very likeness of Christ. We're gonna step into one more song and we have communion. And communion is the very tangible, touchable reminder of the generosity of God. Because in the Last Supper, Jesus with his closest friends, he got together and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. I came here, was born in a manger, lived briefly, died viol I'm dying violently, with, rose unexpectedly. He's saying, for you, for you. This is generosity, this is for you. I, though I was rich, became poor so that you might in me become rich. This is generosity. So as you touch and take the bread, be reminded in a tangible way of the generosity of God. And as you take the cup, Jesus, he said, this is my blood. It's shed for you. All those parts of our lives where we know we're not where we want to be, 
where we're far off from the holiness of God, we're far, far off from our best wishes, Jesus built a bridge connecting us to the holiness of God, not by our works, but by his grace. Generosity. If you are not yet a Jesus follower, I wanna invite you just to take and receive that message that Jesus died for you and he rose again to bring you in connection with God and to give you a family. We also have prayer stations at each side right there of the building. And by the way, gluten-free right there, gluten-free. Some of you gluten-free people are like, thank you, I was wondering. But prayer stations, and here we say this often, don't leave here without getting the prayer that you know you need. That's what this space is. It's a space to come face to face with the generous God, with communion and in prayer. We step into this time, I just wanna pray over us. So you might take a breath, ground yourself, your feet on the floor, extend hands, just being mindful of the God who is near, more near than we would imagine, Spirit of God. Hover over us, Spirit of God. Hover over us, Spirit of God. Where there is chaos, would you bring creation? Where we are far off, would you bring, make us near? Would you bring us face to face with your generosity? The fragile parts of our soul and story, would you secure? And for some of us who feel lost and disconnected from you, would you make us new through your power and the truth of your gospel today for the first time? We pray in your name. Amen.